Well, good morning. We start Advent today, and it's an exciting time in the life of the church, um, not just because Christmas is right around the corner, um, but because we are preparing for the arrival of Christ himself. Um, and because of that, because it is such a big deal, it's actually the beginning. This is the first Sunday of the, the new church year. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the church calendar or the church year, it begins with Advent. And we, we expect Jesus to arrive. And then on Christmas, Jesus arrives. And then we spend the next few weeks um, turning our eyes towards a season called Epiphany, in which we, we, we look at Jesus and we say, okay, he's here, but who is he? What is this Jesus all about? Um, and then we enter into a season of Lent, in which we look at what does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, and following this Jesus means we have to look at ourselves, our own vulnerabilities, our own mortality, our own sins. It's a difficult season in the life of the church, in the life of a Christian. And then with hope, we look towards holy, the Holy Week. Good Friday brings us to the lowest and the depths that we can experience. And then Resurrection Sunday, Easter, brings us to new life. And then in the life of the church after Easter is a season where we look at what it means to be alive as Christians, what it means to be alive as the church. And so today is a significant day as we start this new church year as we start this journey with Jesus once again. And as a pastor, I've had this day circled on my calendar for a long time. I had big plans on how to use this season to grow the church and community and to draw us together. Um, obviously, those plans didn't necessarily come the way that I had thought they would. Um, but I'm excited to have Pastor Will with us and to be able to have Hope Church uh, join us online and while we may not be doing community the way that we normally do, it's nice to still have a sense of community here this morning. But for many of us, Advent is kind of a newer concept. It's not something as a kid that I celebrated, right? You'd get the Christmas catalog around this time. You start circling all the presents that you wanted to get, right? <laughs> and, and, and I, being a, a good kid, trying to help out mom and dad a little bit, I'd go through the catalog and actually mark the pages for them and put together a list. On page 72, this is what you could find. Um, getting good Christmas gifts was what this season was all about for a long time for me as a kid, and, and maybe for many of you. Um, but have you ever had the, the, a disappointing Christmas present? Have you ever had your hopes up for something and it didn't pan out the way that you wanted it to? I remember I was probably five or six years old, um, opening Christmas presents on Sunday morning with my, with my sister, and looking over as she opened this giant box... And as she tore the wrapping paper off of it, it was very clearly a G.I. Joe army base that I wanted. <laughs> that she was opening, and I was so disappointed. And then I opened my present, and it was a pair of pink tennis shoes. <laughs> and I was even more disappointed when I found out it was in her size. So we figured out that the gifts were mixed up. But man, for a moment there, our Christmas was ruined. Um, because I thought she was going to get the very thing that I wanted the most. There can be these moments where we, we have high expectations, these, these expectations that these gifts or whatever it might be will come and, and be everything we, we long for, and they just don't pan out that way. 
Disappointment is, is, is what we call when expectations exceed reality. Right? It, it, what is isn't what was hoped for. And so we're disappointed, and we all handle disappointment differently, and we can find ourselves sometimes angry, sometimes in despair, sometimes feeling lost. Sometimes we get busy and feel like, I can fix this myself. Sometimes we point the blame inward and say, this is my fault that this turned out this way. Sometimes we point the blame out, outward and say, somebody else messed up. Santa brought me pink sneakers. <laughs> I was upset with Santa for a hot minute. But expectation exceeds reality. We get disappointed. And the ancient people of God knew disappointment. They understood having expectations that exceeded reality. And in today's scripture, we look at these ancient people of God as they wrestle with the realization that their own sins, their own shortcomings, their own lack, and their own uh, faults were the cause of their disappointment. This morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 64, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Um, and again, this is, this is the people of God wrestling with disappointment. It says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf and our inequities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O oh Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we again say thank you for your word your word that has persisted, your word that has endured to meet us where we are today. Those, these words in Isaiah were written centuries ago to people that were so different than us in their culture, in their language, in their practices. And yet, the truth that Isaiah spoke to them and the truth that Isaiah spoke on behalf of them can still meet us Today, despite all those differences, we can still connect. We can understand what they were going through. The human experience has not changed that much. And so we are grateful for your words that it meets us here. May your spirit give us ears to hear 
and eyes to see what this prophet of long ago has to say to us today. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. A few weeks back, I mentioned um, that the two most important events uh, in, in the, that give identity or create identity for the ancient people of God, these ancient Jewish people, the two significant events in their history was the exodus and the exile. Right? The exodus we may be more familiar with, the exodus from Egypt, right? We're familiar with this story around Easter time. Um, we, we get uh, Charlton Heston on the mountaintop with the Ten Commandments, demanding to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And, and the plagues and they, the, the enslaved people were set free and they, they run from the Egyptian army and they go through the Red Sea that is parted by God and they go into the wilderness, right? And they become the people of God in the wilderness. And God gives them the law and they become his people again. It says the Pharaoh didn't hear their cries. These enslaved people were burdened, oppressed, suffering, and the Pharaoh could not hear them or would not hear them. But God heard their cries and set them free and called them his own and gave them provisions and a new life. And so many of us are familiar with the exodus, but the exile, for whatever reason, may not be as common or familiar to us. Uh, It's obviously a backdrop in Sunday school stories and Bible studies and in preaching and teaching. Um, right? So some of this will be familiar, but for whatever reason, it, exile hasn't captured our imagination the same way that the Exodus story has. And exile, the reason it's important, it not only shapes the books written specifically about um, what happens there. There's stories in the Bible that talk about the, the exile, but it, it It shapes the books that are written after the exile, but it also shapes the interpretation of what's going on um, or the interpretation of existing teachings and traditions beforehand. So, for example, the book of Genesis, it's our first book in the Bible. There are biblical scholars that look at Genesis and say they can see the influence of Babylonian exile, Babylonian captivity on the way that 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 story is told in that culture. So Babylonian exile has this huge footprint on the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Over 500 years before Jesus, the king of Babylon, a king named Nebuchadnezzar, not only conquered Judah. If you remember your, your biblical history, you'll remember that the unified kingdom of Israel broke in two years before Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. He brought destruction to Jerusalem And more specifically, to the temple. Then, after invading, he gathered the Jewish people and forcibly moved them to Babylon to live amongst the Babylonian people. He forced them to adopt their culture, to serve their king. But because of the strong cultural identity, because of the strong religious identity, because they knew that they were the people of God, and they had practices that shaped their life, these Jewish people maintained a strong sense of identity. So in the Bible, we get stories like the story of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den for praying, continuing to pray to God even though he's in exile. Or Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego being thrown into the furnace because they refused to worship the king. 
Right? And, and so these are stories about individuals, but in many ways, these are the story of God's people at large. This is the story of Judah. This is the story of Israel altogether. That while they dwelt in the middle of this den of lions, while they dwelt in this heart of danger in the home of their enemies, they were protected. They weren't consumed. They weren't destroyed. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even though they lived in the, the heart of this pagan empire, they weren't burned up. They weren't consumed because... The story tells us there was a fourth person in the fire with them, right? They were, God was with them, and so they survived. They lived, they persevered. So we're familiar with some of those stories. The prophet Jeremiah uh, told the people how to live in exile. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the cities in which you find yourself in. He says, because God has plans to prosper you. God has plans to for you to live, right? So Jeremiah brings a message to people living in exile. The prophet Ezekiel also speaks to the exile. At first, he warns of its happening. He warns that it's coming. He says destruction is right on the verge of happening. But then once exile begins, Ezekiel becomes a voice of hope and encouragement. We also can see books of Ezra and Nehemiah that, that talk about the return from exile, and so this, this section of the Old Testament that, that we, I don't know, sometimes thumb through really quickly, or they're small books, or maybe just aren't part of our, our preaching and teaching habits, but they talk a lot about what happens in exile. And then, of course, our scripture for today, Isaiah. And if you understand how big of a role exile plays in the history of Israel, then you start to understand how significant the book of Isaiah is as well. Now, as Christians, we often have a tendency to pull a few verses out of Isaiah here and there and say, this points to Jesus. This, this is, he's talking about Jesus, a suffering servant, or, or some of these other things, a child being born to a virgin. We pull these things out at Christmas time and say, oh, look, he's talking about Jesus. He's predicting Jesus. And, and, and it's not wrong to do that because even Jesus himself, one day in a synagogue, unrolls a scroll and reads from the book of Isaiah and then says this audacious, audacious thing that this applies to me. In hearing this, the scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. So he makes that connection. He was the one that teaches us to do that. But the book of Isaiah has, has two major themes that go beyond just pointing to Jesus. It's about judgment and salvation. Uh, the first part of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal heavily in judgment. And then kind of moving on from 40 on becomes a focus on salvation. Our nine verses that we read this morning fall within the salvation segment of Isaiah, although you can see some elements of judgment in there as well. The whole book of Isaiah works through this relationship between sin, death, and destruction, and redemption, life, and salvation. Isaiah is really working through the relationship between those things. And our scripture today, those nine verses from Isaiah, comes from a time where the people of God were disappointed. They're really disappointed because expectations did not match reality. During the period of exile, 70 years, if you take Isaiah or uh, Jeremiah's um, description uh, as word, um, if you think Jeremiah is accurate. Um, so during the period of exile, King Cyrus rose to power in Babylon. His first year as king, he makes the decision to allow many of the Jewish exiles to return back to Israel, to return back to Judah. 
Um, after this season, 70 years, according to Jeremiah, King Cyrus allows these people to go back home. After decades of living in exile, people who may have been children when exile began were allowed to go back home. And then people who were born in exile were finally allowed to go, to have this opportunity to go to the promised land, the land that was the setting to all the great stories of their ancestors, these stories that they grew up hearing about. They were finally able, given permission, to go back home. They were allowed to go to Jerusalem and restore the temple. After living as foreigners in a foreign land, they were going to be their own people again. They're going to be allowed to go back to their homeland and be who God has called them to be. You can see some elements of Exodus in this story, the God setting people free from captivity and sending them into the promised land. There's some elements of that in this story as well. But can you imagine the, the excitement and the anticipation of returning to Israel after generations of God's people had been kept in captivity far from home, hearing stories of the temple, hearing stories uh, of this great life in Jerusalem, hearing stories of the Old Testament in which Moses and Abraham and, and, and all of these characters of heroes of faith, and they're finally able to go back. Can you imagine the excitement and the anticipation? They think to themselves, of course, this is going to be a wonderful experience. This is going to be everything that we've hoped for. This is going to be everything that we've prayed about. Everything we've ever wanted. Except it didn't go well. When they got back, it, 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 didn't, it didn't go well. The work of rebuilding was slow and difficult. The resources weren't available to restore Jerusalem to, to what it once was. And especially the temple. They didn't have the resources to restore the temple back to the glory that it once was. And so they had their hopes, they had this vision in their mind of what Jerusalem, what the temple was going to look like, except when they got back there, they couldn't make it look like that again. So these people, after generations of hoping to return, got what they, they thought they wanted, except it was nothing like what they expected. And so our scripture today is the voice of a community that is lamenting. A community that is grieving together. Lament is this concept of holy grieving, this profound sadness, even despair or hopelessness. That is lament. And the prophet Isaiah boldly declares the problem of the situation. And we have a slide, I don't know if you guys can see the, the screen at home, but um, in, in verse 6 of the scripture that we read, Isaiah identifies a problem. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and delivered us into the hand of our own iniquity. Isaiah declares on behalf of Israel, we have made a mess of things. We haven't measured up. We haven't been the people you've called us to be. We haven't done the things that you've asked us to do. We haven't been faithful to the covenant. Our righteousness is like a dirty rag. We're not even close to who you wanted us to be. He says that God has hidden his face from them. What that means is that God wasn't present with them. They couldn't see him. They felt like God had abandoned them. That God had moved on, that God had left them far behind. 
The prophet places the burden of Israel's situation squarely on Israel's failure to be Israel, to be the people that God had called them to be. All of Israel has become as one who is unclean, as one who is ritually impure. He says so much so that their righteous deeds are a filthy cloth. The prophet names the cold, hard reality of the people's relation with God. He says there's no one who calls on your name. No one attempts to take hold of you. And so Isaiah names this moment. He says this covenantal relationship, this, this promise, this relationship built on a promise between God and God's people is in danger of being completely severed. It's, it's, it's so close to the brink that there may be no coming back from this because God's people aren't being faithful. Isaiah says that the space between the two is this unbridgeable chasm marked by suspicion of God's absence and clear acknowledgement of the people's defilement of this holy relationship. That's what one commentary said. <laughs> That's a lot. In, 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 to break it down into real English, it says that the, the space between God and God's people It's just too big. It's just too far of a gap. And it's being clearly acknowledged that the reason that gap exists is because God's people have made a mess of it. Because God's people haven't been what they've been supposed to be. They're the ones that's ruined this relationship. Isaiah, again, puts the burden squarely on the people of God. He said, this isn't working out because y'all aren't doing what God wants you to do. But at this point, where the the chasm appears to be too deep, too wide to cross, at this moment where Isaiah lays it out and says, this is just too far gone, Isaiah then leaps into faithfulness with a single word. I think we have a sign again. I don't know if you can see this, but the single word is yet. In verse 8, Isaiah has been building up to this and said, our our righteousness is like rags. God is not even present near us. He can't be found. We're too far gone. We're unholy. We're messed up. We're not doing what we're supposed to be yet, he says in verse 8. When all hope seems lost and the chasm between God and God's people seem to have drifted far too far apart, the prophet, on behalf of the people, makes this profession. Verse 8 and 9, Isaiah says this, Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. In the midst of their disappointment and despair, Isaiah says, Yet, their situation is no good. Things hadn't turned out how they expected. They can't make it better on, them, on their own. It's not what they wanted it to be. It's not what they needed it to be. And they, they realized through the words of Isaiah that they don't have the ability to change it themselves. Again, our righteousness, our best efforts to be holy are like rags. But that's not the final word. Isaiah begins our scripture text for today by declaring that God has previously stepped out of heaven. God has appeared before, shaking the mountains by God's very presence. So not only does Isaiah plead with God to be present with them again, but he declares that God is the potter and God's people are the clay. 
Not only has God created them and made them, formed them, gathered them, shaped them in the past, but God is still the potter who can shape them and transform the clay to whatever God wills it to be. Their current situation was bad. Their current situation was a sinful and unholy people. Yet the God who shaped them before is still the God who can shape them again. Isaiah could have acknowledged the current situation and focused the hope of Israel into wealth and power. You want to rebuild the temple? You want to rebuild Jerusalem? We just need a lot of money and a lot of resources. We can make it happen. If you remember in, in, in the, uh, a little bit farther in the Old Testament, Solomon, when he built the temple, he funded the construction by selling weapons, chariots and horses and, and spears and stuff, selling weapons to the neighboring countries to make Israel rich to build the temple. And he also forced people into slavery to create the workforce to build it. So as great as Solomon is, this was the critique of him. Wealth and power to build his kingdom. Isaiah could have led the people to hope in, a simul- in similar methods, but he didn't. He didn't say, if we just get some more money, if we become a military might again, if we could just have a, a slave workforce again. He didn't point their hope to their own strength. Isaiah could have led the people to put their hope in their own abilities to clean themselves up. Our righteousness is, is like rags right now, but with some good old-fashioned legalism, maybe we can weed the sin out of our camp and make ourselves holy. But Isaiah knew that the people being made holy was always a work that God does in the people. Isaiah knew that even the best-intentioned people could never clean themselves enough to be like God, to be holy, to be pure. And as long as they weren't holy, they would continue to be less than what they were intended to be. And so Isaiah looked at the situation, and instead of saying, hey, everybody, let's, let's put our best effort forward, he points people to God. Isaiah speaks on behalf of this disappointed community, but he also speaks to this disappointed community. He says, God is the potter. We are the clay. God will transform us. God will shape us because after all that has happened and all that we have done, we are still God's people. And so in the midst of this despair and this disappointment, in the midst of this realization that God's people can never on their own be good enough, that their righteousness could never exceed that of filthy rags on their own, that that their best efforts would never get them close enough to God by themselves, After Isaiah identifies all that and just says it openly, in the midst of that disappointment and despair, Isaiah invites them to put their hope in God. God will sanctify them and make them holy. God will transform them and shape them according to God's plan and God's will. God is the potter. He's the one that's going to shape this thing. He's the one that's going to make us who he wants us to be. And so this first Sunday of Advent, we are focusing on hope. But the message isn't just to have hope. I, I, I think sometimes we, we, we get excited about hope and, and we think that we should just, if you just have hope. But by default, I think people generally have hope 
the problem isn't that we don't have hope, it's that we put our hope in the wrong things. Our hope is not in our own ability to fix our own situations. Our hope is not in our own ability to make ourselves better or stronger. Our hope is not in the wealth and power that we can accumulate. Our hope is not that things just work themselves out. We have a very specific hope. God will be with us. And God's presence with us will change things. This is the Christian hope. We can't make ourselves into people of God. We can't defeat the power of sin and death on our own. We can't restore and redeem ourselves. We don't save ourselves. We don't bring redemption to ourselves. Our hope is in a God who can. A God who can do all those things. We look around and see a world that is not what it meant to be, what we want it to be, not what God created it to be. But God is the potter. He has promised to come and dwell with his creation, but not only will he dwell with his creation, but he's promised to take that creation, just like a ball of clay, and to take that creation and to shape it into the very thing he wants it to be, the very thing God intended it to be. We look around right now and it doesn't look like much, (laughs) a corrupted version of what God had in mind, but God is still the potter. And he still can take clay and shape it and transform it into what he wants it to be. So church, let's not just be people with a hope. Let's be people whose hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the one who is coming. Our hope is in the one who brings forgiveness and mercy. Our hope is in the one who comes because of God's great love for us. Our hope is in the one who bears our sins. Our hope is in the one who will defeat death and sin once and for all. As Christians, our hope is in Christ. The Son of God who was born of a virgin. The one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. The one who was crucified, died, and was buried. Our hope is in the one who descended to the dead and on the third day rose again. Our hope is in the one who ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and king of all creation. Advent is a time of waiting and preparing. So while we wait, let us welcome the hope that Christ gives us in his promise to come. Psalm 80, as Pastor Hannah read for us this morning, says, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The world around us may look dark, but Isaiah invites us to grab a hold of this yet. In verse 8, the gap between us and God may seem far apart. The gap between the world and God may seem far apart. Yet God is not done. God has not forgotten his promise. God is still the potter. God is still our father. May we be the people who find hope in that yet of Isaiah. The world is not what it should be. We fall short of who we should be. Yet our hope is in God. Let us welcome that hope today and every day. I'm going to pray as I ask the praise team to come and lead us in a song of response. Heavenly Father, there are many things we can put our hope into. There are many things that we can trust to make life better. There are many things that we can depend upon. 
rely upon to make our lives what we think it should be. There was an entire generation, multiple generations of people living in exile that their hope was to return. Return to the temple, return to Jerusalem, return back to the promised land. Father, when they got there, they realized that they brought their sinfulness, their brokenness, their inability to be faithful to the covenant. They brought all of that with them back. Isaiah, on behalf of, of God's people, owned up to the shortcomings. He says, we have been drug off into exile because we failed in this covenant, not because God failed in this covenant. And he says, and now that we're back, we're going to continue to fail on our own. We don't call upon you, Lord. We don't depend upon you. We don't put our hope in you. But then he spoke that word, Father, yet. When things look dark, when things look beyond repair, when Isaiah acknowledged the fact that God's people couldn't save themselves, he speaks the word yet. (coughs) And that yet turns our eyes to you. Yet you are our Father. Yet you are faithful to your promises. Yet you are the potter who will continue to work with the clay. You can make us into the holy people of God. You can make all creation the way that you intended it to be. God, we know you've stepped out of heaven and into the world before, and the mountains shook. And the enemies of God ran in fear. Isaiah says, That day will come again. The world will know your presence. The world will know that God is with them. Father, we long for that day. We hope for that day. The day that, that as Jesus put in his prayer, that things are on earth as they are in heaven. Help us, Father, to be people of that hope. Help us to be clay that is shaped by your hands so that the world may know there's a God in heaven who cares for them. We thank you and we love you. Amen.